Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint, and we are joined, as we always are, on Friday at this time by our Washington correspondent and analyst, Bob Nay. Bob, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. Uh, okay. Uh, Alexei Navalny uh, is uh, described as dropping dead while taking a walk in the prison yard. Before the break, Bob, before you came on, I said, that sounds like uh, the Russia from the good old days of the Cold War uh, telling us absolutely nothing and uh, throwing in a few lies to go with it. What, what do you know about the Alexei Navalny situation? Well, we know that the Russian response is that the president of Russia has been told, and that so far, before I came on air with you, was the only response I saw. I don't think we're going to learn much. They're saying blood clot. Uh, obviously, there's going to be suspicion surrounding this because in the recent uh, past, somebody fell out of a window, another person had a car crash. You know, we all know about the uh, unfortunate plane accident of the controversial figure that owned the mercenary, you know, service that Putin was involved with. So, of course, there's suspicion. Uh, if you look at the case of Navalny also, Kevin, uh, you know, he ran for mayor of of Moscow. He took 27 percent of the voting team, head of a became head of a political party, became popular and the next thing you know, he had an embezzlement charge, and then they put him in prison, and he had about, a, I think, a year and a half sentence, and then that turned into nine more years, and then that turned into 15 more years. So there was no question that Putin did not want him him around. Now, how effective could it be? he be in prison? Look at Mandela, you know? You can still be in prison and be effective. So I think that we'll never know because the autopsy and the findings is in the hands of Putin's people. Right. If there's an autopsy. Does this have any implications, Bob, beyond just another example of being Putin's Russia? I'm talking about the United States and Europe and NATO and the Ukraine war, or is this just a, you know, does this go beyond the Russian borders? Yeah, some, it was one of the other stations I was on had asked me, you know, what's the implications for Putin? And I would say nothing. This is not going to arouse, you know, people to the streets in Russia. As far as worldwide, you know, they can, any country can condemn all they want. We have enough to condemn Putin on anyway, you know, let alone uh, we'll, this won't make a difference. So, yes, I, I mean, it's sad that this man's died, but I would say that, uh, you know, it's not going to, this is not going to play a factor. Yeah. Uh, most Americans and most Vermonters, Bob, do not know the name Mike Turner. Uh, he is a Republican and he is the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee in Washington. Uh, can you tell us why Mr. Turner is suddenly in the news? Well, yes. Uh, and by the way, I uh, campaigned for Turner to get in Congress. He was an Ohio congressional seat. He had been mayor of Dayton as a Republican in Dayton, Ohio, 
That's not easy to be a Republican in that region. We campaigned feverishly for him. He got elected. We re-campaigned for him. I did fundraisers for Mike. So I know him well. And when this story came out, let me tell you what jumps out at me, because there's always a lot of personal things behind these. I mean, I know people look at, well, it's a congressman, but there's personal ways people act, you know. And I just want to throw this out here, Kevin, uh, knowing Turner for years. Turner is one of the most cautious human beings to the point where I sometimes wanted to scream, okay, when I dealt right. with him. I'd be like, Mike, you know, but he he would want, he wanted everything dot, dot the I's and cross the T's, which is great. I wish maybe I would have functioned more like that. But so I, I bring this into the story because he has announced uh, and some people are opposing him and some people are with him and some Democrats are against him and some Republicans are for and against him. But he has said that there is some extremely important, sensitive information that he wants to see declassified. Now, he chairs the Intel Committee, so he can actually get information that some members of Congress don't they don't even have. And he said that he's communicated with the White House, but the White House is turning around through Sullivan, the national security uh, you know, man for Biden is turning around saying, well, no, no, we we didn't approve basically of saying declassify. We wanted to brief the, the top eight in the House, which is the four top Republicans and four top Democrats. So bottom line, Kevin, he he's saying there's critical information about Russia. We know it deals with outer space and some things Russia's trying to do there. Uh, Matt Gates of Florida, Republican, is accusing Chuck Turner of trying to gin this up against Russia so that Ukraine can get money. Uh, one of the members has asked the speaker to investigate Turner. Now, I, I will tell you this. Turner is one of three committees where only the speaker puts him in as chairman. The three committees are Intel, Rules Committee, and the committee I used to chair, which is House Administration. The rest of the committees are decided through a kind of convoluted process. Those three committees are speaker's appointments. That's kind of the highest level committees you can you can get. And so if he's done something, Turner, that's out of order, the speaker can remove him, you know, within minutes if he wants to. He doesn't have to go through a caucus procedure. So I just wanted to throw that out there. I don't know what's going on. It's, I mean, somebody's right and somebody's wrong, and either Turner is going to look ridiculous or people are going to say, hey, you know, Turner sounded the alarm bell when he should have. I don't know. But I will tell you this. He's normally an extremely, extremely cautious human being. He's not a, and, a, a you know, a, a flamethrower. And, and this takes place um, at, at the same time as, the Senate has passed a supplemental budget package with money for is Israel and uh, Ukraine. I would point out that Senators Bernie Sanders and Peter Welch from Vermont voted against that package. Uh, Sanders famously saying on the floor of the Senate several times, not one more nickel for Netanyahu's right wing government to throw bomb to send more bombs at the Palestinian people at the in God, the people in Gaza. Um, and then, then the now it's over to the House, and the Speaker has a real tiger by the tail in a caucus that is increasingly split. And also, uh, his majority just slipped with the uh, election of a Democrat in a special election in New yeah. York. Absolutely, he 
the whole system is haywire in the House, top to bottom. I mean, the speaker's getting it from every angle. You're also starting to see some people out in Washington in the House Republican side say, gee, McCarthy looks good. So you can see the beginnings of them coming after the speaker. I argue they won't throw him out unless they've completely lost their minds. They will not throw the speaker out before the 2024 elections. Republicans, if they throw the speaker out and go through what they went through before, Kevin, they might as well stick a fork in the majority. It will be under the Democrats. That it, people will not tolerate two months. You know, there's other important issues out there, two months of wrangling over a new speaker. But I must say there are so many minefields right now for uh, Speaker Johnson that it's in, it's incredible. Uh, Bob, and one last thing, uh, Biden has had another the president, the president's had another conversation with Netanyahu. Uh, the uh, CIA director, Bill Burns, is meeting with Netanyahu and the Mossad secret uh, police chief, David Barnea. Um, all of this, uh, I, I think you feel and I know others do that Biden is really feeling the pressure from the left on uh, Netanyahu and the need to do something as as Biden runs for re-election. Can you take us through that? Right. Biden is tanking in Michigan. He's tanking with focus groups that were, you know, including Republicans who had went for him over Trump have went back to Trump. Um, he's tanking with the younger progressives. He's tanking with the younger uh, Democrats, with the Latinos, I mean, all over the place. And with the Israel situation, he's actually losing ground with pro-Israel people, people, in other words, that are just there for whatever you know, Netanyahu has asked for. He's losing ground with them. But now, at least what I see, and you know, I've been around a long time, and, I've, and I'll ad- admit that I've been part of sometimes we leak certain things we want out there you know, for, for the way we want stories to be written. And it's done in Congress. It's done in the White House. They are leaking stories on Biden where he slammed down the phone on Netanyahu. He cussed him out on a couple of occasions. And then they come back and then they'll ask Netanyahu for certain things, you know, for uh, flour to be sent. And it's been two weeks where they haven't sent the flour in for humanitarian aid. And then the two-state solution and Biden says that Netanyahu is over the top with how they're going into the southern city of Rafa. So I know I'm spitting these out kind of fast, but you and I could spend an entire show, one of your shows, Kevin, on the things that they're going back and forth on, Biden and Netanyahu. And what's ended up happening here is Biden is being basically categorically told no across the board, but they keep doing these stories. And I just have a suspicion some of these stories are trying to say to the progressives, hey, I'm really trying to do something. I also monitor uh, some progressive Instagram sites, people I know, I, I personally know them, and I look to what they say. And a lot of people are not in the forgiving category. So these stories coming out where you know Biden is now saying uh, they're thinking about considering a, a support of a Palestinian state, those things are not setting well with the progressives. They really don't believe he's he's that sincere. They think he's throwing these things out there. And then on the other hand, 
he's losing ground as he's starting to look like he's fighting Netanyahu on support of Israel. So I think this has no particular set guidance from the administration. And also, one other thing, with this constant weighing in on what Netanyahu is doing, if we're sending him money, Israel, that's one thing. But for us to weigh in every day and have Netanyahu shut down Biden, you know, is Biden trying to sort of make this his war also, in a sense? Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's something he just he just simply has not won on, meaning Biden. Yeah. Well, we will uh, we'll follow it. And uh, boy, a lot going on in the world. Bob, Day, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint. And we're going to welcome in uh, Derek Brower, uh, seven days reporter. And we're going to talk to him about his uh, story this week. Derek Brower, welcome to the show. Yeah. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for having me. So, well, that was a long one. Uh, the fight for Decker Towers, drug users and homeless people have overrun a low income high rise. Residents are gearing up to evict them. Boy, um, that was uh, that was long and deep and uh, unsettling, I must say. Take, start us at the beginning. What is happening in Decker Towers? Yeah, so uh, Decker Towers is uh, the tallest apartment building uh, in Vermont. It's 11 stories, and it was built uh, in the early 70s, so it's an older building with uh, tight, cramped quarters uh, and, and two uh, tall 11-story uh, stairwells. And this is a home for 160 uh, low-income uh, seniors and people with disabilities. And, and over the last couple of years, but uh, increasingly uh, over the, this, this past winter, really, uh, this building has uh, become a, uh, a source of drugs. Uh, there are tenants uh, in the building who are uh, caught up in the drug trade or are dealing drugs. Um, and that has created a magnet for, for people who are looking for a place to buy and use drugs. But also, uh, as uh, there are not, not enough shelter beds in Burlington and around the state, um, this, uh, these, these two stairwells, uh, as well as some of the common areas, have become uh, you know, unofficial uh, sheltering spaces for, uh, for the homeless in, uh, in Burlington. And, and so um, just last month, uh, when the temperatures dipped, kind of like they are uh, right now, um, uh, Burlington Housing Authority, which owns the building, uh, their staff found uh, 23 people uh, sleeping in the stairwells uh, on those cold nights, uh, which is almost as many people as sleep in the city's uh, warming shelter on any given night. Okay, and I must say that there are great photos in this story by James, by your colleague James Buck, um, and it's uh, as I said, it's really unsettling. The 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 residents have taken to, as you say, uh, taking self-defense classes, buying weapons at Walmarts like stun guns, knives, and other things. What are the residents doing about this? Yeah, so uh, as as this building has uh, become a magnet uh, for drug use and, and sheltering, uh, this is this has led to uh, frustration, uh, confrontation. Uh, violations of uh, the residents' uh, personal space, their belongings, um, the laundry rooms. Uh, you know, this is, it's, th these are, you know, what it boils down to is what we have are, are two pretty incompatible uses uh, of this building that are occurring simultaneously. 
And uh, many of these residents uh, who themselves are, are quite vulnerable are, um, you know, are, are terrified, frankly, and they have been arming themselves. They have been barricading themselves in their uh, studio apartments at night. Uh, I talked to several who have bought security bars or who prop a chair uh, on their door handle at night because there have been attempted break-ins into apartments as well. So it is it is really an untenable situation uh, going on over there. And uh, it has gotten to a point in recent weeks that uh, residents uh, have organized themselves. And um, in the absence of a stronger law enforcement presence or a stronger private security presence, uh, they are forming their own neighborhood watch and are planning to do uh, patrols and uh, and serve as uh, as bodyguards, frankly, at the door um, to try to keep people uh, to kick people out and to keep people from uh, coming back in. Uh, so it's it's taken this um, uh, you know what after spending some time there and watching these interactions unfold, you know it's it's a concerning turn in a lot of ways. Um, because uh, you know it's, it, it seems ripe for uh, for uh, further confrontation and, and potentially uh, violence. Um, why is the Burlington Housing Authority and the executive director is Stephen Murray? Why are they unable to manage their own building? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and uh, you know there are some. Particular challenges with this. I mean, Decker Towers is, I should say, is not um, is, is not wholly unique in in the state right now. And in fact, since the story is run, I've heard from a lot of people who are telling me about other buildings that have similar challenges, but but not at the scale of Decker because of its its design and its and its size. So so they are they are dealing with the, sort of the the hardest version of a problem that is that is uh, that you know residents and, and low income communities and apartment buildings are dealing with all over. State. But, uh, you know, the housing authority says that, look, this is um, uh, the problems they are facing uh, are largely attributable to illegal behavior. And uh, and the criminal justice system has not uh, adequately uh, responded to to what, what's happening there. And uh, Band-Aid measures like uh, private security, uh, which you know does not have the authority of law enforcement, but but at least the appearance of it. Um, is is simply uh, too expensive uh, for the housing authority, which runs on uh, very thin margins and, and relies on the federal government for rent checks. Uh, they, they they can't afford that without robbing uh, their uh, their their future and and uh, and robbing funds that would that would pay for essential maintenance and and uh, capital improvements for for these buildings. So there is uh, right now there is a. Uh, you know, one way of thinking about the the problem here is whether this is a management issue uh, with the housing authority or a, a community issue and a community responsibility around uh, criminal justice, but also uh, homelessness and uh, substance uh, uh, treatment. And and where do where does the mayor Moreau Weinberger and the Burlington police fit into all this? Yeah, I mean they um, so. They, you know, the Burlington police say they are, uh, and the mayor's office says they are responding to uh, to high priority uh, calls at at the building. And uh, the mayor, uh, the mayor told me very directly, this is a management, you know, management uh, failure at at the Burlington Housing Authority. And and in fact, and and while I was reporting the story, he announced that he was not reappointing the 
uh, chair of the Housing Authority's Board of Commissioners and instead uh, installing uh, uh, Brian Lowe, who is uh, his former chief of staff and who led the COVID response uh, uh, in the city as well. So uh, the, the mayor's perspective seems to be that, that there are more steps that the housing authority ought to be taking to try to control access uh, to the building um, and, and are, starting, are starting there. Um, but the housing authority, uh, you know, the, its, its management says it, it, it cannot afford uh, those steps, and the some of the steps and the other steps that have been suggested just simply aren't, aren't uh, going to be as effective as the mayor's office thinks they will be. Uh, Derek, I wonder if I could ask you to speculate here. I wonder, you know, so many of the things that we did in the 70s, 60s, 70s, even 80s, 90s, seem to be today – uh, primitive, primitive or silly uh, efforts to solve problems. I wonder, would we build Decker Towers today? I highly doubt it. Yeah, I think that's. I think that's a great question. I mean, I, it does. Just being in the building, uh, certainly the design um, is is not is not modern in, in this way. It was not designed with these sorts of. Uh, the the current issues there in mind, um, I don't think. Um, it is also, I mean, it's it's an odd, you know, it is it is a peculiar building in Vermont as as well, not in not in other cities, but uh, but in Burlington, it, it does stand out um, in this way. It, you know, it was built as as sort of public housing and and what people often think that that means, but it, but it was within the last 15 years that. Uh, the, that building was actually converted uh, to a, a different sort of program and is now um, is now part of uh, what uh, what most people know as the Section 8 program. So the people living there are getting housing vouchers. So it is it is now uh, rather than a federal uh, you know a, a, a federal public housing building, it is a, it is uh, owned and managed by this local housing authority uh, that uh, relies on the federal government to pay most of the, most of the rent there. So um, it is it is a it is an interesting and, and particular case in that way, but uh, I do think it's uh, you know it it, it poses it, 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 it the way it was created you know makes it uh, in, in some sense more more vulnerable to what's what's happening uh, there now. And in the thirty seconds we have left, um, the, the the residents have created a a council uh, to organize and take back their building. Is that right? Yes, that was uh, they, they voted um, to create a resident council. Uh, this is the first time they've ever had one in that building, as I understand it. And their first act was to uh, last week was to form their, their neighborhood watch. So uh, they are planning to start these patrols. And once they get some what they describe as training and guidelines and T-shirts um, to, to start these patrols um, soon. Well, that's a tough story. Derek Brower, uh, thanks for coming on to uh, tell us about it. We'll we'll look for your updates coming up. Thanks, Kevin. Okay, Derek Brower, Seven Days. You can read his story at sevendaysvt.com, or you can get it on the newsstand. Uh, we're going to come right back after this break. I'm Kevin Ellis. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Welcome back to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we are taking your calls in this last segment. Uh, you can call me at 802-244-1777. Um, 
and we welcome your calls with our new, our latest guest. Uh, to say that my next guest is a photographer would be giving him short shrift. John Snell is, among other things, the chair of the Montpelier Tree Board, a peace activist, a key executive at the Montpelier Farmers Market, successful entrepreneur, community booster, and yes, a super, super photographer. In fact, his latest show is premiering this Saturday at the Highland Center for the Arts in Greensboro and will run for a month through March 17th. It is called Water, Ice, Vapor, The Wonder of Water, and John Snell joins us now. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I hope I can measure up to that introduction. <laughs> well, I figure I got many of the facts wrong, but uh, I figured I'd just uh, damn the torpedoes. Did I get it all right? You're good, yeah. <laughs> so, tell us about the show. Um, you've, you've, you're a veteran photographer of many, many years, but tell us about this particular show. Yeah, it's really exciting to be having a solo show there. It's a huge, beautiful space, and Maureen Burgess curates it, and she's just superb at what she does. Uh, the show is based around water, but water in all three phases, so liquid, solid, and gas or vapor. And it's something that I've been intrigued with for many, many years, and it all just came together in this space and time and having uh, a place to show it. Yeah, the Highland Center for the Arts is quite a place. Um, there's there's so much going on there. And, uh, yeah, you're right. It's I mean, I think of it as new, but been around for a few years now. Yeah. Um, what what brought you to this subject? You say you've been fascinated with it for a long time. How long and, you know, why? Well, as I, as I was preparing for this show, I looked back to some of my old black and white film uh, images and some early slide images. And many of those were of things that I'm still photographing today, water, ice, clouds. Uh, so I guess I've been at it now for 60 years. And uh, uh, I've, I've come a long way, both in my understanding of what I'm looking at and my ability to really portray it in a way that works for me and, and I hope for my audience. Um, <clears throat> but there's still, it's water. And when I was teaching people to use thermal imaging equipment, that was my career for 30-some years, uh, it became very clear that water also played a huge role in the way the world works uh, in terms of uh, temperatures, uh, global climate change. I mean, it's just key to all of those things. Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, I am, a lot of the audience knows that I've been on the road for a good while now, and I'm I'm actually doing the show from the Joshua Tree National Park uh, out in California. And boy, I am in a desert climate and water is at a premium and there isn't a lot of it around. Yeah. And yet just a little ways away to the west, there was a lot of it around last week. Yeah. 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 No, it's it, yeah. And in Vermont, of course, 
we are, you know, you come from a desert environment and you come home to Vermont and you realize uh, we are, water is everywhere. Vermont has just got so much water, lakes and ponds and, and rain and snow. It's, it's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, John, what, what, tell us about the show. What are, what are people going to, going to see and experience when they walk into the Highland Center for the Arts? Well, it is a show unlike any that I think has been hung up there to date because there's about 170 images of various sizes on the walls and hanging from the ceilings. And uh, it's a bit overwhelming, but my hope is that it will uh, make an impression as to how potent uh, thinking about and being with water, ice, and clouds really is in our lives every single day. And my goal is to show a lot of details. Um, a lot of my work is on a small scale, uh, asking people to look closely at what's right in front of us. Uh, and see things maybe in a way that we haven't before. Uh, so my hope is that at, at, as you walk out of the Highland Center, uh, you start looking immediately at what's around you and see things that maybe you would not have seen when you first walked in. And tell us, go, go back in time. How did this all happen? How did you get this bug is this is this a recent phenomenon for you, or have you always been seriously into photography? Well, I've been curiously into photography and uh, looking closely at things uh, since childhood. I first picked up a camera when I was 15 years old. When I was 18 years old, I sold my motorcycle and bought a Nikon camera with three lenses. Two years later, I married a woman who had another Nikon camera and three different lenses. So uh, I've been at it for a while. And, and I was fortunate to live in places where I could wander in the woods. Uh, I lived right on a beautiful little stream. And so every single day I would see the changes that come through time, through the seasons, uh, and, you know, just learn so much by simply looking. There, of course, have been a lot of people who've inspired my work and from whom I've learned. Bernd Heinrich's a big one. Uh, Mary Holland, who's well-known here in Vermont. Um, Brian Pfeiffer, uh, on and on and on. Uh, lot, lots of people that I've learned from. Well, well, Pfeiffer is a regular listener to this show, so I'm either going to get a text or a call-in from him in, in the next uh few minutes who knows maybe although maybe he's out in a bog somewhere we had him on to talk about his his discovery of the that little brown butterfly it was a memorable yeah. moment yeah when you john when you are working uh are you in boots uh six layers of, uh, of vests and jacket and hats and with a tripod or 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 three cameras around your shoulder what do you look like when you're in the field? Well, all that has evolved, too. Um, I guess the number one uh, thing for me these days is being safe, uh, in part because I'm not quite as agile as I used to be. Uh, I care more about my wife than ever, and 
I want to come home safely to her. So when I'm when I'm in a stream in the summertime or fall, uh, I'm wearing basically the same footwear that a fisherman would wear. Uh, they're they're remarkable boots that uh, allow you to walk on slippery rocks without falling down. Uh, in the winter time, I wear big cleats, and I just I don't I don't take the kinds of risks that I used to anymore just not worth it yeah. for one picture that might be a good one or might be a lousy picture. You never know. Um, <clears throat> I do dress warmly because I'm when, when it's sub zero, I'm typically out there looking for great ice photos. And I use a lot of disposable hot packs uh, that keep my fingers as warm as they can be. Uh, sometimes keeps my camera from freezing up. Um, but you know, the, the main thing is to be out in this uh, world that we have. Tell us, uh, you brought all this photography uh, interest to you when you came to Vermont. When did you get here? How long have you been here? And, you know, why Vermont? Uh, I first started visiting Vermont in the early 70s. Uh, I had a dear friend here, and Liz and I came out to visit them three or four times. I moved here, we moved here in 1976 and had a one-year-old son at the time. And uh, we were actually getting ready to go back to Michigan, which is where I grew up, uh, a place where there mostly I grew up around lakes, not rivers and streams. Um, and we just ended up unpacking the car and staying, and I don't regret it ever since. <laughs> And uh, let me ask you, if I could, why is it, why is photography important? I, you know, I personally am not a photography guy. I love a good picture when I see it, uh, but I am not handy with a camera. Uh, why, why is photography important to all of us? Yeah, it's a great question, Kevin. And certainly that has changed in the 60 years I've been making photographs, um, you know, they're just, they're everywhere nowadays, and many of them are never looked at or only looked at briefly online, and then, you know, they're left on our phone or lost in a drawer. Uh, for me, what photographing, uh, especially water, ice, and clouds does is it causes me to focus on a small part of the world or as, you know, as big as it is in my lens and really take a look at that. And then after it's all, all my work now is digital. So it's very easy to access. When I go back and look at it again, I just see more and more and more of what was right there in front of me. I'm also always humbled by what I don't know about what I'm looking at. And I think that's, one of the things that I'm hoping people will take away from this show at the Highland is that it is water is so complicated, so amazingly complex in how it behaves and how it affects our our planet. Um, that just looking at a stream going by gives you a lot to think about. John, before the break, you talked about how photography. 
uh, allows you and forces you to focus in on one small thing. And I, I, I'm fascinated by that because is there a connection to that with the the bigger world out there where it's it's kind of a an antidote to all the craziness that's going on around us right now in the world that you can and you can sort of almost take a break from it by focusing in on one small thing. Yes, it absolutely is. I love that term, an antidote to the craziness of the world. Uh, and I it just when I'm out by myself oftentimes or uh, with standing in a stream of water photographing it, I go some other place. And it's a place that, you know, it, it, it's special. Um, that said, Kevin, it also always brings me right back face-to-face -face with the, uh, the fact that we've really screwed things up on the planet. Um, you know, you, you, you pick up a, a bottle of water in a plastic bottle and you realize we've blown it. <laughs> and yeah. those kind of connections, as well as the ones to peace and, and real, you know, solitude are, are never far away. What do you see in terms of your phrase, we've blown it, what do you see out there in nature today versus what you saw as a teenager? How have we blown it? What I'm, you know, the, the, gosh, the plastic wrapper, uh, you know, in the woods as you're walking is the most obvious part, but are there more subtle things you see that tell you how the, the nature has changed because of humans? Yeah, I mean, one, one big one is, you know, think how often you've had to clean bugs off your windshield. It used to be a right. daily occurrence when I was growing up back in Michigan, uh, and there were insects everywhere, and as a result, also a lot more birds than there are today. Uh, so we've changed the, the scope of who, what's growing on the planet. Um, the other one that's just painfully obvious are um, the 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 amount of rain, the amount of water that's in the air. As we've raised the temperature of the planet, we've increased the humidity, and so we have more water in some places and less water in other places. We've upset the uh, basically it's the Arctic escalator that brings uh, a whole temperature regime to the especially the northern hemisphere. Uh, that's now breaking down pretty quickly. And when it does, uh, we've seen nothing compared to what will result from that. Okay, last question before we have to go. You are known around town as a pretty mild-mannered guy, <laughs> and yet, and yet uh, you know, always willing to lend a hand, a huge community booster. You're out there planting trees. Um, in sidewalks, and yet um, there's a lot bad in the world that you are involved uh, in trying to change. How do you stay positive? I stay positive by looking at the beauty that exists in the world. And I don't just mean pretty stuff. I mean beauty. And sometimes that's 
something that's not easy to look at, but there's a certain peacefulness even to that. Um, I grew up with a family that had a lot of uh, Chinese art in our house because my mom and dad were born there. And there's a certain balance in that art that shows up in my photography and in my outlook for the world. And it's not just about everything looking great. It's about a balance in life. John Snell's latest photography exhibit is called Water, Ice, Vapor, The Wonder of Water. It's at the Highland Center for the Arts beginning tomorrow. John Snell, where can people find you in your photography after they after the exhibit and they want to find out more? Where can they find you besides on the streets of Montpelier? <laughs> um, the, probably the simplest place is to go to my blog site, which is Still Learning to See. Okay. Well, everybody goes still go to still learning to see and go to the Highland Center for the Arts uh, starting tomorrow and see John Snell's uh, hundreds of photographs. John, as always, thanks. I appreciate it. I do too, Kevin. Nice to talk to you. Bye bye. Okay. Take care and best of luck with the show. And that is our show for today. My thanks to our guests, John Snell, Derek Brower of Seven Days, Bob Nay, and Maddie. And Maddie Lenser and Chris Alfano, the winners of the John Lewis Youth Citizenship Award. And thanks to John Lewis for clearing the way and staying at it. Be sure to follow all of these people online. Read them, see them, follow them. They're interesting and provocative. And uh, by supporting them, we make sure that they're going to be around. Remember to join me next week again for a review of the week's news and continuing observation of Black History Month. You can hit me up on Twitter or email me at uh, vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Our goal is always to illuminate and inform and have some fun along the way. I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it to that John Snell exhibit, but uh, but uh, I please check it out. And when you see him on the street planting a tree or uh, in his travels, uh, chat him up. I know he loves to talk about it. Remember... You can stream the show live, listen later as a podcast, wdevradio.com. You can find me at kevinkellis.com. Subscribe to my newsletter, my podcast called Conflict of Interest. Our show is produced by me, engineered, made possible by everybody at, at uh, WDEV, including today, uh, Danny McGivergan and Lee Cattell. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we'll see you right back here next week for more discussion of politics and culture in Vermont and beyond, wherever you are, right here on Vermont Viewpoint Live Radio on the friendly pioneer WDEV.